Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and I'm the host of the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm the youth and young people's worker here at Crescent Church in Belfast, and we're coming to the end of a three-part series on the Bible. In our first episode, we discussed the idea of the Bible being the inspired Word of God. In episode two, we thought about how Christians can justifiably claim that the 66 books in their Bibles are inspired, but only those 66. In episode three, we're going to think about the reliability of the manuscripts, and I'm delighted to welcome Jim Crooks back with us. Jim, it's great to have you back. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back with you. In some ways, we've left the really difficult problem to the end. The 66 books in this Bible aren't the originals. They've been copied many times since. So how can we reliably trust the words in our Bibles to be the ones written by the original authors? The attack on the reliability of Scripture is an entirely rational one. We can't trust what this book says because the words in it are copies of the original manuscripts, copies made hundreds and hundreds of years after the originals were written. Now, a good benchmark for manuscript reliability would be to take something like the records we have of Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar was off fighting his Gallic Wars around about 50 BC. We have 10 manuscripts that record his life, dated around 900 AD, so roughly a 1,000 years after the actual events. Now, the New Testament was completed in AD 90. How does it measure up? We have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament books. You can go and visit the Vatican or the British Museum and look at a complete version of the New Testament dated between 300 AD and 350 AD. You don't look particularly enthralled at the prospect of a visit like that. But the codices are awe-inspiring when you see them. The Vaticanus Codex is a breathtaking piece of work. 759 pages of bound vellum. Each page is about 10 inches square with three columns of beautiful scribal work on each one. Now, the codices of the 4th century are really impressive. But we can get closer to the actual events than that. Recent discoveries of biblical manuscripts written on papyrus can be seen All you have to do is get on a train, go down to the Chester Beatty Museum in Dublin, make that trip, you'll see big chunks of the New Testament written as far back as 200 AD. If you want to get even closer to the original documents, take a flight to Manchester, to the John Rylands Library. And there, you can see a fragment from John's Gospel, chapter 18. Now, that fragment has been dated to around about 130 AD. It's only a fragment, of course. Now, I could go on for much longer about other discoveries. Almost all of John's Gospel discovered in a document that predates 200 AD. So by any objective standard, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is astonishing. Over 5,000 manuscripts, some dating back to within 40 years of the originals, and all dating to within 300 years. Now, let's go back to Julius Caesar. Five documents over 900 years away? Or what about Aristotle? Less than seven documents over 1,300 years away. So the manuscript record for the Bible is without parallel in the ancient world. I mean, I've been using the 5,000 figure, but if you add translations into the equation, that 5,000 figure rises to 24,000. That's certainly uh, an impressive volume of manuscripts, but what about the thousands of differences in those manuscripts? Is that a cause for concern? Well, I don't want to gloss over the fact that there are lots of differences in the biblical manuscripts, but most of those differences are caused by the evolution of language. Just think of how our language has evolved. If you read John 3.16 in Tyndale's translation, it's barely recognisable. But of course there are more serious mistakes incorporated into the texts. Uh, Material that was once written in the margin is then incorporated into the main text and so on. But with over 5,000 manuscripts, it's relatively easy to identify the mistake 
and trace back to the original. In the days when I had a real job, I, I worked in the, in the IT industry, so it made me laugh when I discovered that the techniques that biblical scholars use to identify transmission errors, they're actually exactly the same techniques found in modern communication protocols. I'm talking about things like backpropagation and so forth. Transmission errors have always occurred and always will occur. But with the wealth of material available to us, transmission errors in biblical manuscripts can be identified in exactly the same way as a corrupt data packet winging its way to your smartphone. So anyway, if you take a step back from all that detail, here's what you come up with. 99.9% of the biblical text is undisputed. There are two sections of scripture that are disputed, the last 11 verses of Mark and the first 12 verses of John 8. And all else, we could go into that in a lot of detail, but all I'm going to say about them for now is that no core Christian doctrine is affected by them, And in the John 8 case, there is little dispute over whether the event actually occurred. The only dispute is over its place in the fourth gospel. So we've been thinking a lot so far about the New Testament documents. But what about the reliability of the Old Testament books? Yeah, well, until recently, the story of the Old Testament manuscripts was nowhere near as impressive uh, as the New Testament story. The earliest versions of the Hebrew Bible that we have are dated around about 900 AD. We don't have earlier versions for a a really interesting reason. It's because of the respect with which Hebrew scholars treated their texts. You see, whenever a copy of the Torah became too worn, it was ceremonially buried out of respect for the word. Now, of course, we have translations of the Hebrew Bible, which are from about 200 BC. But confidence in the Hebrew Bible was predicated on the culture which produced them. You know, the rules governing scribes were incredibly detailed and tight. They were designed to eliminate propagation errors. So the length of each column, the number of letters per column were all stipulated. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or a thread must intervene. Between every word, the breadth of a narrow consonant and so forth. And they used all these elaborate systems of checksums and counts, again, that you find in in modern-day communication protocols. And they used this to eliminate textual errors. They numbered verses, words and letters and so forth. They counted the number of times each letter was used in a book. They calculated the middle word and the letter of each book and of the entire Hebrew Bible. So everything that we thought about the Old Testament was predicated on that culture. And then in March 1948, the faith of Christian scholars in the accuracy of the scribes was put to the test when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the ancient ruins of Qumran. And about 200 of the scrolls were of Old Testament books, and they were dated nearly a thousand years before 900 AD. The most famous is the great Isaiah scroll, and here's the thing. With the exception of some small differences, the text is identical to the Masoretic text found today in any Hebrew Bible. Okay, let's move the conversation on slightly. It's one thing to say the Bible is reliable, but it's altogether another thing to say that it contains no errors whatsoever. And I think the big question is, how do we arrive at the doctrine of inerrancy? And isn't it a circular argument to say that we use the Bible to defend the idea that the Bible has no errors within it. Even if you accept the fact that there is nothing illogical about the idea of inspiration, and even if you accept that the manuscripts can be treated with considerable reliability, how does someone in the 21st century, an intelligent person, get to the point where they actually believe that this book is free from any errors? Is that something that we're just required to accept as brute fact? Okay, this is a crucial argument, Ollie. In order to become a Christian, do I just have to assume that this book is the inspired word of God? Doesn't that trap me, as you say, in some sort of huge circular argument? 
I believe that Christianity is true because the Bible tells me that Christianity is true, and because I am a Christian, I believe the Bible. Surely that makes no sense. Well, a rational person doesn't have to make that leap of faith. I'm going to outline a simple three-stage argument that allows us to escape that circular reasoning, okay? So, first step. There is compelling historical evidence that the gospel records provide us with a reasonably accurate description of what Jesus said and did. And as I guess I said in the first episode, if I have conceded the existence of God, then the stories of water turning into wine cannot be ruled out in principle. I can reserve judgment on them. So we have access to the character and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the first step. Step two, I encounter Jesus Christ. I make a judgment about who he is. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he's either a lunatic or a liar or he is the Son of God. And if I become so compelled by the moral grandeur of his character, I can then believe what he says to be true. That was step two. And then finally, step three. If I have become convinced that Christ is who he claims to be, I can now treat the Bible the way that Christ treats the Bible. On countless occasions, Christ treats Scripture as the very Word of God. It stands written, he keeps saying. He regards it as completely accurate. So by following that logic, I can become convinced that the Bible is in fact the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Faith in Scripture isn't an irrational leap in the dark. It's not the acceptance of a brute fact. It's the destination reached at the end of a rational inquiry. It looks to me that the crucial step in this argument is actually the first one. You claim that the gospel records give us a reasonably accurate record of what Jesus said and did. But how can we become confident that they were written by eyewitnesses and aren't just made up decades later? You're absolutely right. Step one is the crucial one. I'm actually going to recommend a little book for thoughtful non-Christians to read. If the logic I've suggested works for you, then the key thing you need to test is the truth of the gospel records. If you have access to a reasonably accurate description of what Jesus Christ said and did, then everything we've discussed in these episodes flows from that. And the little book is called Can We Trust the Gospels? It's written by Peter J. Williams. Now, Pete Williams is a very serious scholar. He heads up Tyndale House in Cambridge. He's debated Bart Ehrman. But he has managed to write a book that is accessible. It's simple to understand, and yet it contains the best of contemporary scholarship. So that's the book I would recommend. That sounds like a, a great book, Jim, and we'll be sure to link that uh, when we post this podcast up. Um, what sort of evidence does he provide for the Gospels being genuine eyewitness accounts? Okay, well, I'll give you a few examples. Whoever wrote the Gospels had detailed knowledge of first century Palestine. So take its geography, the names of towns, bodies of water, rivers, and so on. There are hundreds of place names in the four Gospels, and they all fit with what we know from non-biblical history. In contrast, incidentally, if you took the Gospel of Thomas, to go back to that for a moment, it hasn't any geographical details in it at all. But the Gospel writers knew what roads went uphill and what ones were downhill. Then there were the names given to people. They all fit in with names that were popular at the exact time these events took place. But for me, the best evidence comes in the case Williams makes for tracing the source of material in different Gospels back to a single teacher. Matthew and John are supposed to have nothing in common, but when you look at them in real detail, you can see compelling evidence of a single source. Now, some people say, oh, I can't trust the Gospels because they were written by followers of Jesus. They must be biased. But that argument doesn't hold water, really. No one is ever neutral about anything. Imagine that I'm an innocent man who has been accused of murder. Now, I have a very, very strong interest in being found innocent, but does that mean that my testimony should be discarded? Of course not. So approach the Gospels with an open mind, see what you think of Christ, and as I said earlier, I promise you that the moral grandeur of his words and his actions will draw you further and further into the Christian worldview. 
let's just make this really personal as we draw episode three to a close. What would you say to a young Christian who has doubts about the inspiration and accuracy of the Bible? Maybe they're wrestling with that. Maybe it's a a distressing problem even for them. What would you say to someone like that? Well, it's quite usual for me to find myself sitting beside a young Christian who has developed doubt about the reliability of the Bible. Maybe he or she has watched some Bart Ehrman videos on YouTube or read some of Richard Dawkins' material. And when you come across this stuff at first, it can be quite unnerving. There's no doubt about it. In one sense, it's inevitable that some of you will have moments like this, especially if you were raised in a sheltered environment where no one ever questioned the Bible as the inerrant word of God. But you need to avoid making a logical mistake at this point, and I call it the house of cards mistake. Some people regard the Bible, and in fact their whole Christian faith, as a house of cards. They're terrified that if one tiny discrepancy is found, then their entire worldview will collapse in an undignified heap. If someone could prove to me that the dimensions of a bronze basin in Chronicles isn't the same as the dimensions recorded in 1 Kings, then my Christian faith is over. Or if Mark's account of the resurrection and the number of angels in the resurrection doesn't seem to fit with Matthew's account, then the whole edifice is a lie and I must convert to atheism. Now, please do not misunderstand me here. I happen to believe in the complete accuracy of Scripture. I'm not saying that apparent contradictions don't matter. My point is about not panicking when you encounter them. Think about all that a Christian has learned. Consider the Bible's analysis of the human condition. Are you convinced by that? Does not the Bible's description of a personal creator make sense? And what about Jesus Christ? Have you not found his moral character to be so compelling that you have become convinced that he is who he claims to be? And the grand story of your salvation? Does that not make sense of your existence in a way no other philosophy does? My point is that you have a core ground on which to stand, so there's no need to panic. So a month or so ago, uh, I had a conversation with someone who had serious doubts about the apparent contradictions in the various accounts of the resurrection, and I gave him a terrible answer, an awful answer, because my brain was entirely sleep-deprived at that point. So I went home, and I examined all 65 verses that make up the accounts of the resurrection, and I then consulted some books in my library. And after a couple of hours' work, I put pieces together, and I saw how the apparent contradictions melted away. But suppose I had not done that, and instead I had brought up more Bart Ehrman videos and visited more atheist websites. The danger might be that deep down I wanted there to be problems. If you know someone who continuously brings up apparent errors in the Bible, but they aren't prepared to put the work in to resolve those issues, then there's almost certainly a deeper problem lying underneath. The healthy way to deal with apparent errors in Scripture is to stand on the solid ground of what you have become convinced of, and then put in the hard work, approaching the problem with an open mind until the issue is resolved. Jim, thanks so much for your time. It's been really great doing this series with you and look forward to episode four. If you would like to suggest a topic or question we can talk about together, please email theequipproject at gmail.com or reach out to us via Instagram.